Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. This is Abdurrahman, and you're listening to the Heartwork series on the Qalam podcast. Heartwork is a weekly session at the Ruth Community Space in Dallas, Texas, where young professionals come together and discuss ideas and concepts on how to grow in their religious practice and their relationship with Allah. This particular series is called The Messenger, where the focus of the discussions will be on lessons from the life of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. If you enjoy and appreciate these sessions and these series, then please consider becoming a sustainer of the Roots community space by going to rootsdfw.org slash sustain. We really appreciate your contribution. We appreciate your prayers. And we appreciate you listening to the programming that we put out. Jazakumullah khairan. Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Assalamu alaikum. Bismillah walhamdulillah wa salatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Welcome back. Welcome home. Welcome back to Roots. Alhamdulillah. Happy to have everybody. Hope, inshallah, that everyone's uh, not too cold and wet from the weather outside. <laughs> inshallah. Um, yeah, at some point it was like pouring, subhanAllah, today. I know traffic got real serious, so I hope everyone, inshallah, didn't have any car issues or any safety issues. Alhamdulillah, it's good to see everybody. Um, we're going to continue, inshallah. We're going to jump right in with our uh, study of the life of the Prophet, sallallahu Um Because my mom is in town, so I have to finish so I can get home. Inshallah. Uh, we went grocery shopping today. Uh, so that means she's throwing down right now. So uh, so we last week we learned over like one of the coolest parts of the seerah was the Prophet Sallallahu initial arrival to Medina and the inaugural address, right? His, his initial address to the people of Medina and what that meant and what he focused on. When you, when you think about the life of the Prophet Sallallahu there's so many different things that he could have focused on, so many different parts of his message. Aisatussalam. There's so many things that he could have talked about, but he focused on really the four things that are like the glue or, you know, the mortar, right? You guys see this brick behind us? So you know that the bricks are the red part, and then in between is that mortar. And the job of the mortar is to hold together all of these elements. And so the Prophet ﷺ gave like this binding community advice. And really what he's teaching us here by giving us these four points is that he says that if a, if, a, if a community or if a group of people can really focus on these four things, then they will have a community that can be held together through any difficulty, that can withstand any difficulty. If you look at Medina and all of what was gone through, all of what the people of Medina had to go through, really it was this foundational teaching that allowed them to, to, to make it through. So whether it's your family, whether it's your uh, friends group, whether whatever, like your social circle, Making sure that you have these four elements. The first was salam, afshu salam. The Prophet ﷺ said, "Spreading peace." So obviously, we kind of talked about spreading peace verbally, but also being a peaceful person. Don't be the source of drama, right? Don't be the source of drama. Don't be the one that says, "Oh, I don't know why drama always finds me." It's because you're a magnet for it, probably, right? Just just deflate drama. Like, and here's here's a good way of doing it. Like, if somebody starts to introduce a situation that's dramatic, then you just simply can say, I don't really want to talk about that, right? And, and move on. Yeah, it's a little awkward for a second, but it's better than being, you know, the, the flame that's going to burn down relationships or bridges between people. So being a person of peace. The next he said, Aisatussalam, was feeding food to everybody, making sure that food is always plentiful. And we, you know, I mentioned this before that in the Quran, Allah Ta'ala, he says, فَلْيَعْبُدُوا رَبَّ هَذَا الْبَيْتِ He's commanding people to worship Allah. الَّذِي أَطْعَمَهُمْ مِّن جُوعٍ وَآمَنَهُمْ مِّن خوف. That the one who has given them food when they were hungry, who's fed them while they were hungry, and he has given them safety. So if a person wants to 
be able to worship Allah, they're not going to do it when they're scared or when they're made to feel unsafe, and they're not going to do it when they're hungry, right? Because those are the base needs. Everyone here has taken Psych 101 back when you all thought you were going to be a psychologist, right? And then you realize, you're like, wait a minute, okay? And then only the few strong remained, mashallah. So, you know, we take Psych 101, uh, Abraham Maslow, hierarchy of needs, the very base need, right? Safety and then nourishment, okay? So Allah Ta'ala told us, that if you're going to, you know, Allah Ta'ala says, so worship the Lord of this house, the one who has fed you when you were hungry and has given you safety when you were scared. So even in the Quran, this is, there's this idea that there's a hierarchy of needs that have to be fulfilled before a person can do what's asked of them, requested. So the Prophet Sallallahu is saying the first step of community is to make a place safe and then to make people feel well fed. Right. And that's why even in Islam, if you're trying to pray and you don't feel safe, you're allowed to delay your prayer. Right. If you are trying to pray and food is presented and there's a substantial amount of time for prayer, then what should you do? You should actually eat a little bit first before you pray, because otherwise you're going to be praying and you're going to be facing the Qibla. But your Qibla now is the samosas. Right. Like your your external Qibla is Mecca, but your internal Qibla is the dining table. And so the Prophet said, if food is present, if it's ready, not if it's like, oh, okay, 30 minutes. All right, let's wait. No, if it's ready, like if it's ready to eat and it's also time to pray, but there's time to pray afterwards, then maybe have a little bit to eat first and then go pray so that your mind is settled, so that your body is settled. This is a prophetic teaching. I'm not making this up. This isn't like liberal Islam. This is like actual another prophet, okay? I know I get that a lot. Okay, so anyways, I'm venting now. See, now I'm just projecting. All right, so the first was salam. Second was food. Third was family, that you never forget the ties that you have bound to you, these family ties. And yes, is it possible that there are family ties? And the Prophet himself had family that went against him. But that's not the general rule, right? There are exceptions to every rule, but we don't make rules out of exceptions, right? As Sheikh al Nasr always says, there's rules and there's exceptions, but you don't make rules out of exceptions. So family, the general rule of family is that they are the, the binding that keeps us together, we're tied together with family, right? There's that responsibility that we have. So is the rahim, to make sure that we take care of our family ties. Exceptionally sure is a person, they might have a toxic relationship inside their house. Yes, it's possible. Could a person have a toxic relationship inside of their uh, extended family? Yes, it's possible. Then what's your responsibility there? To do whatever you can within your capacity, so long as you're not being, uh, you know, hurt, as long as you're not detrimental to yourself, right? Whether it's, a phone call for Eid, whether it's a, a card sent for their birthday, which apparently I'm going to get flamed for that now that I said that, right? <laughs> or whether it's, you know, anything, right? You, just keeping that tie. And you, you know, internally, you know what the extent of that strength of that tie can be, right? So you decide based on that relationship. And the last thing is prayer. Prayer, right? Because the first three have to do with your relationship with others. And then the Prophet Sallallahu says, to pray in the night while people are sleeping. That your rejuvenation for everything you do all day is your relationship with Allah. That your energy comes from that relationship with God. Your trust, the, the purpose, the drive, the reason, everything. It all comes from Allah. I'll tell you something, right? 32, my birthday was on Friday. I'm old. 32 years old now. Let me tell you something. You are never, ever, ever, no one in the world, no person in the world will ever treat you and give you the, 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 the praise and the appreciation that you really deserve. Like not a single person will be able to do that, right? Because the things that you do, the, the sacrifice that it requires, the time, the thought, you know, people don't appreciate those things. It just is what it is. People will do whatever they can, but it's not going to be one for one. 
You know, some people in your life, they'll give you 95% appreciation. That's really good, right? Some people, like, you put a lot of time and effort into something, you give it to them, they're like, thanks, and they move on. You're like, right? But that's what ikhlas is. Sincerity is when you do it and you don't, you don't care. You don't even think for a second. You don't flinch when a person doesn't say thank you because you know you did it for who? For Allah. And if you did it for God, then your reward is with him. It's not with them. It doesn't matter whether you say thank you. It doesn't matter whether you don't. Right? It doesn't matter whether you say thank you or whether you don't. I did it for Allah. Whether or not you think, and obviously, right, you don't give it to them and then they're like, yeah, thank you. You're like, I don't care what you think. Right? That's, that's, not, that's not conducive to that relationship. But internally, internally, you're not bothered. You're not hurt. You're not rattled when you don't get the praise that you think you deserve. Because then ultimately, where, what were you doing it for in the first place? Right? What were you doing it for in the first place? So, oh, well, I, you know, I called them on their birthday, but they didn't call me on mine. I got them a gift, but they didn't get me one. I threw them a party. They didn't throw me one. These are all like nefsi things, like just like, oh, it's all about me. Just forget about it. If you do something for somebody, it's for the sake of Allah. It's not for them. And if they don't return it, that's great. Allah is giving you an opportunity to feel how sincerity feels like. You know, when your friends forget about something or when your family forgets about something, Remember, that's Allah giving you a chance to feel what sincerity feels like. You have a moment. It's like a fork in the road. Am I going to be real or fake? Am I going to be authentic or am I going to be not real, right, inauthentic? Am I going to be the person that actually meant what I did? So salam, food, family, and prayer. These are the things that will bind together community. Now, at this same time, literally, while all of this is happening, while Kuba is happening, actually much before this even, there's there's a person who is like one of my favorite, favorite companions. Salman al-Farisi, Salman the Persian. So much so that literally, I kid you not, Musa, my son, his name was Salman up until like a week before the delivery. I don't know like what changed it. I really don't. We just woke up one day, we're like Musa, right? But Salman, the story that Salman al-Farisi has, like his legacy that he left, who he was, and his love for the Prophet like his love, the drive that he had based off of that purpose from the Prophet is like, just it's it's legendary it's classic it's one for the ages and he was such a powerful person for a couple different reasons the prophet sallallahu recognized this power within him because one time after salman had made it to medina and after they had been gathered around he wanted salman to tell his story to the companions he said salman tell us your story tell us like what how did you get here you're from persia a little bit of a history lesson, okay? Persians and Arabs at the time, not friends, no bueno. They don't like one another, okay? Persians, Romans, and Arabs had like this triangle of hate. You ever heard of a love triangle? This is a hate triangle. They all hated each other. And so to have, you know, Byzant- Byzantinian or Byzantine or Byzantine, I don't know how to say, people come and become Muslim was shocking. To have Persians come become Muslim was shocking. Because even though it was a religious experience, very much so it was dominated by the cultural landscape. That Arabic was the language of those people. And naturally, right, if anyone here is, you know, converted to Islam, there's a natural reality to when you move to a different place or you convert to Islam or you're a newcomer that in the beginning you initially feel left out. You feel kind of left on the side, whether it's language. I was once meeting with someone here and he was saying, this is a big lesson, by the way. He was saying that he's been a Muslim now for a few years and he said that like every gathering I go to, like everyone's talking in a different language and they like laugh and I'm just like... Right? And eventually he's like, I just started faking. I started laughing with them. <laughs> and then they look at him. They're like, you understood? Right? So they're aware. And the Prophet ﷺ actually said in a hadith that if two people are talking and a third comes up, it's haram for the two people to continue talking secretly. General rule. Exceptionally what? It's a private conversation. It's sensitive. It's time. It's urgent. That's the exception. We're just talking like socially. If two people are talking and the third comes up, 
then those two people can't leave the third person out. And the scholars say of Hadith say this includes language. That if two people are to, you're like, well, we included him. We included her. It's like, yeah, they don't speak Urdu, man. They don't speak Arabic, right? If you call that Arabic, ah, just joking, right? Biddi falafel, right? Right? They, they don't speak Farsi. They don't speak Pashto. They don't speak what you're speaking. Why don't you try to be inclusive and have that empathy to try to see, okay, what's the common denominator between all three of us? Like, well, how, can I, how can I bring this person in? And then on top of that, think about even topic choice. You know, if two of you have a lot of shared experiences and you're just going inside joke after inside joke with one another and the third person is just totally left on the outside. Think of the hadith, like apply it. Like maybe it's time for me to pause the inside jokes and try to pull this person in. Ask them about themselves. Try to create some relationships there, some connections. So this is a very, very important concept. That's a manifestity coming from an outsider. How did the Prophet show everybody that he was part of the community? Well, first we have to go back to his story. He tells Salman in front of everybody, tell us your story. And this is part of actually how he's introducing him. He says, tell us your story. So Salman of Fadisi, he begins. And he says, when I was a young man, I was from the land of Asfahan. Asfahan is in modern day Iran, right? Asfahan. And so Salman of Fadisi was from a region in modern day Iran where in a town called Jai, where he was from a different religion altogether. He's from the Zoroastrians. Do you guys know what the Zoroastrian religion looks like, what their primary worship is? Fire. They worship God through fire, right? It's like a conduit. But fire is a very important element. Their temple is centered around a pit of fire. And the, the, the goal behind their religious practice is to keep that fire lit, to keep it going, because obviously that's their conduit to God. And if it shuts down, then there goes your connection with God. So they try to keep it going. Now, Salman of Fadisi says, my job, my father was the chief of our village, and my job was to keep the fire going. He was like their Mu'edhan. He was like the guy who called the Adhan. So his job was to tend to the fire. He had a very high position in their temple. And he said, my father, I was the dearest person out of everybody to him. He says, I was the dearest person out of all of Allah's creation to my father, that he kept me in his house and he kept me close to him, just like, he said, like, like a father might keep his youngest daughter close to him. This is kind of the example he gave. A father might keep their youngest daughter, right? The eldest daughter, they're like, have fun, you know, whatever. Do you youngest daughter? Like, my baby, you know? And so he's giving his example. Of course, maybe different in different places, but this is his example. And he says, I worked hard. He actually said I was like a very devout Zoroastrian. I was a Magian. That's what they called them. I was a Magian. I was a very devout Magian. I worked very hard in the religion until I became like the primary keeper of the fire. I would give the Adhan, right? So to speak, I would be the one who was primarily known. And I didn't, I never let it go out. He said, my father had a massive garden. He had a huge piece of land. So one day he told me, he said, I'm going to go and tend to my garden. I'm very busy with it. I want you to keep watch on the fire and keep watch over this area and I'll be back later. So he says that I went and I was working and then I went to go check on my father and I was walking towards the garden and I passed by this very interesting building. This is like, you know, remember he was kind of sheltered or you might call his dad like a helicopter parent. Okay. So he's kind of sheltered. So he's like, this is the first time he's exploring. I don't know if you, about you guys, but like when I was growing up, there was like a limit to where I could walk. Well, I was like, just down the road and back. My mom used to say, if I look out the window and I can't see you, you guys know what that means? Some of you are laughing, some of you are blank. For those of you who are blank, God bless your soul, right? For those of you who are laughing, you know, right, what happens when these fingers open, okay? So my mom would say, if I look out the window and I can't see you, like, this is her, like, this is like, she's instilling the fear of God in me. She's like, this is what Tukla should feel like. 
if I look out the window and I can't see you, you are in trouble. I'm like, what if I'm like outside of your vision? She's like, it's not my job. Right. Okay. So I remember like the first time that I like went around the corner. I was like, freedom. Right. And the park was around the corner actually. And so this is what Saman was like. Like he escaped. He like walked and he was going to the garden and he saw this building. And this building happened to be a church. And he said, I listened closely as I was walking by the church. If you look here, this is one of those Zoroastrian temples actually in, uh, in Iran, uh, in modern day Iran. It's, it's defunct now, but they still have them there. People go visit. He says, I was walking by and you can see in the back there, like the walls are open, right? These temples, they had like open walls. So it wasn't like now where we have soundproof and everything is, you know, insulated and all that. So you could hear people praying. You could hear them chanting. There was a lot of uh, acoustics built into things. The dome, the purpose of the dome is acoustic. You guys know that, right? The purpose of the dome is acoustic. It's meant to sort of amplify the voice so that it echoes. So when the reciter reads or the chant, it echoes throughout the, the facility. So he said, I could hear the voices of people praying. He said, I didn't know anything about them because I was stuck in my house my entire life. So I was curious. So I went to them and I was impressed. I went and I was impressed by their prayer and I was attracted to their way. Like I looked and I said, wow, that's, that's actually beautiful. Their devotion, their practice. And then he said, by God, this religion is better than what I follow. Just by seeing it, he said, this religion is better than what I follow. Here's a lesson, by the way, okay? The lesson here, subhanAllah, is very powerful, is that when he met these people, when he saw them, none of them went to him and introduced religion to him. None of them explained their theology. None of them even, like, talked about what they were doing. He just went, and he was impressed by their devotion. And a lot of times we hear this, and we're like, wow, that was quick. You know, you read the story, the narration, you're like, wow, he really accepted their religion very quickly, especially after being a Zoroastrian for so long. It's, you would expect him to put up a little bit of a fight internally, right? Maybe go back and forth, back and forth. This is the power of when someone's heart is sincerely looking for truth, right? I've heard stories, literally I've heard stories, and even my own father, like my, my dad's conversion story is very similar to this, when he talks about how he accepted Islam based off of the adhan of a young Somali boy who worked in a hotel in Egypt. And he said, my dad thought it was like a fire alarm. So he went and, and it was a fire alarm if you think about it. And he went and he, and you with me there? Okay. I was waiting. I was like, okay. Bars. I was a rapper in another life. Okay. So he, he went and, and he saw that everybody was going towards the Musallah because in Muslim majority countries, they tend to have like a prayer, like a chapel in a, in a, in an airport. They have like prayer spaces in public uh, you know, businesses and buildings like restaurants and hotels and stuff. So he saw everyone going to the Musalla area and he was very impressed. Like my dad grew up Catholic his entire life in the middle of, you know, Springfield, Illinois, you know, corn country. He, he was impressed by seeing people so devoted to God. And I remember, I'll never forget one time my dad told me like he thought to himself and it was Fedger. So Fedger, obviously before the sun comes up really early, he thought to himself like, man, if people can get out of their beds to worship God, what kind of faith must this be? Like that was his turning point, right? Everyone here who misses Fedra, we all feel guilty now. We're like, dang. But that was, it. that was his understanding. So like people do, they are impressed. People are, are inspired. That's a good word. People are inspired by your sacrifice. Like when people see somebody pull up in the parking lot, throw out their yoga mat, right? And, and throw on whatever cloth they have to cover their hair or like, you know, drape a towel around their knees or something. There, you might think that it's ridiculous. You might think that maybe it's a little bit out of place, but your devotion is inspiring, right? And it's keeping, it's, first of all, it's fulfilling your, you're not doing it for show, but it's fulfilling your action. But it's also something that we're not used to seeing a lot of. We're not used to seeing people stop their day and stop to thank God and worship and praise him. 
It's not something they're used to seeing. I told you all the story before about when I prayed at a football game, right? And we asked the guard, can I pray here? And they said, yeah. And then as we were praying, people came in football games, you know, halftime, get some more refill, right, on the beer and stuff like that. So people were a little bit, you know, tipsy. And we weren't winning, so they were angry. And so they came by and they started yelling while we were in Sajud. Hey, what are they doing? What are they doing? And they were like, you know, kind of upset with us for praying there. And then the guard that was biased was like, hey, leave them alone. They're praying for the Vols. And that was the team that we were watching. <laughs> so we told the guy beforehand that we would pray for them. He's like, throw one up for the Vols. We're like, we'll do that, right? <laughs> yes, sir. Okay. So anyways, the point being is that it, it, it's something, it, it's, it's inspirational, right? This action. So when Salman al-Fatasi sees people praying, even though technically, technically after the messenger of Allah came, like the religion now, the Christian faith and text has been abrogated, and you'll see what I mean by that. Even though, but he's still impressed by that. Never let your ego get in front of your salah. Never let your ego or your embarrassment be an obstruction between you and God. Never let that, right? You know one of the biggest times when ego gets in the way? When I have to make wudu and I just got done getting ready. Like, you know, you just got done getting ready for some, like, fancy event, and you have to make wudu, and you're like, ah, and you, like, Google, you're like, what's the least amount of hair that has to get wet in order for my wudu to count? Like, that's, or do I really have to do all that, you know, or nails and this and that? Don't let your ego get between you and Allah. Never, ever sacrifice your connection to Allah for something that's so, it's just trivial, right? And because that, the power that you are creating in that moment of prayer is inspiring everyone else in the creation. Everyone else, people who see it, people who are around it. So Salman al was impressed. And he said, I was so entranced by what they were doing. I was so in love with what they were doing, what they were chanting and reciting, that I didn't leave them until the sun set. And I totally forgot about why I left to go check on my dad in the garden. I totally forgot about it. So he went to them and he said, where did you guys come from? Like, what, what religion are you practicing? He said, we're practicing the religion of Abraham and, his, and our forefathers, right, from Syria, this religion originally came from Syria. He went back to his father, and his father looked at him and said, where have you been? I've sent people to come look for you. He said, didn't you do all the tasks that I asked you to do? Where have you been? So he was, you know, Bajada Miskin. He's like a young boy. He's like, you know, he's really honest with his dad. So he didn't even try to hide what he just went through. He just says, dad, you will not believe what I just saw. He said, I just saw the most beautiful religious service. Like, I just went and witnessed the most beautiful thing. And he said, I saw people who were praying in their church, and I was so awestruck by it that I stayed with them all the way until the sun was gone. Like, that's where I was the whole day. His father said, my son, there is nothing good in that religion. There's nothing. It's just a bunch of garbage. Just don't, ne- don't ever go there again. He goes, your religion and the way of our forefathers is much better than this, is much better than this. And he said, don't go back. So then Salman responded to his dad. He goes, no. Right? And when I read this, I was like, oh, God. Right? Like, I got goosebumps. I was like, here it comes. Right? Like, get, like gauging myself. He goes, he goes, no. I swear it is better than our religion. And so my father was scared for me. So he put my legs in shackles. He literally put them under house arrest. And he said, no, I'm going to tie you up and you're going to stay here until you come back to your senses. It's interesting. You see this, this, this phrase a lot. The religion of our forefathers. You see it actually. You see that in the Quran that whenever the Islam, whenever Islam is mentioned, then the opposite tribe is talking about no. Let's follow our path of the religion of our forefathers. Really, what they're referencing is their own cultural or religious heritage. Let's follow the way that we've always been following. And this goes back to the whole point of why the Prophet wasn't liked in Mecca was because he was calling for change. 
He was calling for change. And as human beings, we are creatures that try to find comfort. We never want to be in an in a, in a, in a environment of change. We want to be comfortable. If someone comes up to us and says, like, hey, get up, we're like, no, I'm sitting. If someone comes to sit down, you're like, no, I'm standing. I'm fine, right? We don't want to be made uncomfortable. But the Prophet Sultan was coming, and he was asking people to change their very way of life. And so oftentimes when Islam comes to us and we learn something new or we're reminded about something that we've already known, and it's beckoning to us, it's calling us to change our way of life, we feel this inherent aversion towards it. We feel an aversion. I've been doing this my entire life. This is the way that we've always done it. This is how it's been done. And whenever you are, start to rationalize with yourself at that moment, realize that you are repeating an argument that's exactly the same as what Salman al-Farisi's father told him. It's exactly the same as what Quraysh told the Prophet When you start to, when I, let's put myself in this, when I start to lean back on arguments of, well, this is just comfortable for me, this is the way that it is, then realize that progress will never be made. I'm just going to be stuck where I was. Change the, way you wa- change the way you are. It's not about the way you were. His dad kept relying on this argument, but Salman al-Fadis was saying, forget that. You're not even understanding what I'm seeing, what I'm telling you. And so he put his legs in chains. So then he sent word. He called one of his you know, messengers, and he said, I sent word to the Christians. And he said, if any merchants come to you from Syria, then tell me when they're leaving. So he says, when they leave, I'm going to hop in with them, and I'm going to escape to Syria. He was so devoted to find the truth that this meant leaving everything. This meant leaving family. It meant leaving his position, his community. He was willing to go. And he said, when they have completed their business, when the merchants come and they do their trade, when they're about to leave, tell me I'm going to hop in with them. And so the messenger came back to him a few days later and said, they're done with their business. They're going to leave this afternoon. He says, I slipped through the chain that was around my legs, and I went there until I got to Syria. I hopped in with them, and I got to Syria. When I got to Syria, I went and asked everybody in the community, where's the best person in our religion? Right? So now he's like, I'm in. It's like people move to Dallas. like, which masjid should I go to? Right? Or where's the best place for Jummah? And everyone's trying to find that spot, that community. So he goes and he says, where should I go? Where's the best place for religion? They said, there's a bishop. There's like a sheikh. There's a bishop in the church. You should go and learn from him. So I went to him and I said that I would like to accept your religion and I want to stay with you and I want to learn and serve you and I want to pray with you. So the bishop said, come on in. Come on in. You're welcome. So I went in with him, but Salman, in this part of the story, very interesting, he said, he was an evil person. He was so corrupt. He was absolutely evil. He said he would get on the member, or he would get on the pulpit, and he would tell his community to donate to the ch- donate charity to those who were poor, those who were less fortunate, those in need, and he would collect all the charity, and then he would keep almost all of it for himself. He would put it aside, and he would keep all of it for himself. And he said that, he never gave it to the poor until he had seven giant trunks of gold that he had collected from his community, from our community, for himself. He goes, I hated him so much. Salman said, I hated him so deeply. Don't you guys see this? It's very profound. He didn't allow this moment to turn him away from the religion. He's seeing corruption right in front of Literally, he asked people, who's the most pious person? They say, that guy. And that guy is like, yeah, I'm the most pious, right? Pay up. And he's witnessing this corruption in front of him, but he doesn't let it weaken his faith. He just says, as an individual, I've developed so much anger in my heart towards this person. And so he said that when he amassed this much gold, finally, this old man, this old bishop, he passed away. And all of the congregation was mourning him. They came and they wanted to bury him. 
They wanted to you know, give him a proper burial. So he said, my conscience wouldn't let them do it. I stood up in front of everybody at the service, and I said to them, this person was a bad person. Can you imagine? Can you imagine, like, this is the religious leader, right? And at his, at his janazah, basically, someone gets up and they say, this person was evil. He was corrupt. And they all say, how dare you say that? They yell at him. They're like, what could you say? And he said, no, listen to me. He goes, this man used to steal from you. You guys know that zakat, that sadaqah you were paying, the charity you were giving? They said, yeah. He said he never, ever distributed it. He was always telling you he was going to give it to the poor and he was going to give it to the needy. He never did. And they said, okay, prove it. Show us. Where are all these chests of gold and silver that you're talking about? He goes, okay, fine, I'll show you. He goes and he shows them. They're like, that son of a, right? (laughs) They get mad. They actually become extremely distraught. They take his body, they crucify it, and they pelt him with stones, his dead body, as punishment for the fact that he did such a horrible thing. He said, then the community brought another person and they appointed him to his place. Now, this is, a, this is where I want to pause for a second. There's no secret that when it comes to human nature, we are inevitably going to err. We're inevitably going to make mistakes. Okay? And whether a person is you know, a, a practitioner or a preacher or a teacher or a scholar, those mistakes will happen. I remember one time I, I was on a, a conference call for imams. They, they exist, by the way. We have WhatsApp groups and everything. Okay? And I remember I was on a conference call with like one of these big, big scholars from America, big name. And it was after one of these unfortunate events that had unfolded where there was a well-known preacher who committed some really problematic things. And we asked him, we said, Sheikh, like, what do we do? Like, what do we do? We, you know, we're scared for ourselves. We're human. We don't want to fall. We don't want to stumble. What do we do? And he said something very beautiful. You guys know what he said? He said, everyone commits sins. Everybody. He goes, everybody commit sins. They say things that they regret. They miss prayers once in a while. You know, they might do something. They might think something about somebody. They commit sins. He goes, but there's a certain level of sins called the kabair, the big ones. And he said, your job is to not do those. He goes, you're not going to be perfect. You're not the prophet. You're not the messenger of God. No one's perfect. He goes, but your job is to number one, any sin you have that you never, ever gain comfort doing it in public. Because people who do sins in public, the Prophet ﷺ said, they've lost their eligibility for forgiveness. Meaning that they show it without caring. If somebody does a sin and they don't care, the Prophet ﷺ said, everyone will get forgiven except for the one who shows their sins. Meaning what? That Allah had hidden it and we're like, let me open up Instagram real quick. Or let me post it. Or let me tell people. He said, keep your sins hidden. Now our mind says, well, that's hypocrisy. I don't want to act perfect. I'm at least going to be real. I'm going to show everybody my flaws because that's, that's me. I want to be the, my true self. The Prophet says, no, 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 no. You don't show people the things that are between you and Allah. right? You don't justify it. You don't try to rationalize and say it's okay. But at the same time, we don't go walking around with a resume of, of problems that we have. You have a little bit of shame, right? You have a little bit of regret, remorse. That's number one. He said, never, ever publicize. And he said, number two, never commit the great sins. As a leader, as a teacher, as a servant of community, he goes, never come close to those things. Why? He said, because ultimately human beings, as the Prophet Sallallahu we talked about earlier, they're looking to people for evidence of religion's ability to work. When I look at the Prophet Sallallahu and I see his character, I'm like, man, this stuff really works. When you meet inspiring Muslims and Muslims, people who are just incredible, you're like, man, Islam really works. And then you hear a story about like a corrupt preacher or teacher or a Muslim person that you knew or somebody, some maybe uncle that you were close to who like unfortunately did something really bad. And you're like, man, is this stuff even legit? Does this stuff even, is it real? 
right? Do I really have to follow this to be good? Clearly not, because they were following it and they were bad. But we have this story from the life of the prophet where he tells us that it's been happening since day one. There have been people in positions of religious authority that have been abusing their authority since day one. How did they respond? How did they turn? Did they turn their back on God because there was a person who was a sinful person in front of them? No, they didn't. So the man of fantasy, him and his community, as soon as this person is gone and away from them, they put, they said what? They brought another man and they appointed him in his place. And what does he say about this person? He said, I have never seen a man who is better than this person. His faith, his character was so beautiful that it made up for all the, the, the corruption that I saw. And he worked so hard and I loved him more than I loved anybody else. He said, I was with him for a long time studying until he was about to die. So I went to him and he was on his deathbed and I told him, I can't thank you enough for what you've taught me. Where should I go? Where can I go from here? Who else can teach me like you? And he said, my son, I don't know of anyone else in this area, but I want you to go, he said, to a place in Mosul, right? In Mosul, which is in modern day Iraq. He said, go and find a man. And here's his name. And some matter of fact, he said, I actually forgot his name. He actually said the narration. He goes, I forgot who his name was. He goes, but go and follow him and join him. He said, then he passed away. He was buried. So I went to the person in Mosul and I stayed with him and studied until he was about to die. And the same thing happened. I went to his deathbed. and I said, I appreciate you so much. Where can I go from here? And the person said, okay, where do you advise me to go? He said, go to Nasayabin. It was another city. And then he said, I went to that person. I stayed with them in Nasayabin. They were about to die. I went to them on their deathbed. And I said, where do I go from here? It was literally like a treasure hunt. He just kept going from teacher to teacher to teacher. You guys want to see what this looked like? A lot of times we think like, oh, yeah, okay, like Irving to Carrollton to Plano, like big deal. Like, no. He was crossing countries on foot. He was seeking Allah in thousands of miles. Like, literally, look, he started in Asfahan. He comes over here near Jerusalem. Then he goes to Mosul up there. Then Nasibin over here. Then he goes to Amuria, which is the next person because this happens over and over and over again. And then in Amuria, he meets the final person. And you know what that person says? He goes, who else can I learn from? The person goes, no one. He goes, no one. There's no one else. We were the last of like, you know, we were the starting five. Like, I'm the last one. And then he goes, but subhanAllah, you know what he says? He says, there's a, there's a man who's coming to the land of date palms. He goes, we've heard in our books and we've read the prophecy of a person coming to the land of date palm trees. And he says, it's somewhere in, the, in, in, the, in, the, in Arabia, in the Gulf. And he didn't even know the name. Like, he didn't know Medina, what? He just said land of date palm trees. And he said, you should go there because he is the last prophet that is bringing the message of Ibrahim. And he is the one that will be the one that you can learn from. And he said, when he died and he was buried, Salman continued, he said, I, st I stayed in that city. And I was thinking in my head, like, land of date palm trees. Like, how do I even, what a cryptic clue. Like, what a cryptic clue, right? I mean, he's done all this work, subhanAllah. He's done so much work. Your drive to Roots is not so bad anymore, is it? He literally, guys, on foot, covered hundreds if not thousands of miles to find a connection to God. And it's, it, we, 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 we live in the era where, like, if a podcast is delayed uploaded, we get, like, 30 DMs. Like, I'm a sustainer. I'm going to cancel. <laughs> if you don't give me episode 27, it's done. You and I are through, Right? And I'm, I'm joking, right? I'm like, I'm joking. <laughs> Please don't cancel. So I, I, I'm joking. But, but seriously, 
think of the entitlement that we have when it comes to our spiritual growth. The entitlement, like religion must be made accessible to me. It must be given to me. Like I'm sitting there and God forbid the khatib doesn't speak perfect English. One of my friends, man, one of my closest friends growing up. You know what's awesome, by the way? When your friends become your teachers. When you start to see people as being better than you, you start to learn from everybody, your friends become your teachers. So when you see yourself as better than everybody, you don't learn from anybody. But when you see everybody around you as better than you, then you start to learn from everybody. I was arrogant when I was close to this person. I was very arrogant. I never saw him as better than me. And then as we moved and went on with our life, I realized how incredible he was and how garbage I am. Wallahi, like I realized and I missed the opportunity I had to learn from him. And now I just learned from him from Facebook posts, bro. It sucks. Like I was with him for so long. And he wrote this post one time. It was dope. Mashallah. His name is Abdul Sattar. He's in Chicago. He's an amazing person. You know, he says something really profound. He goes, you know, everyone complains about going to lectures where the person is relatable and speaks English well and we can hear and we can understand. He goes, what about you? We talk about the teacher's skills. What about your listening skills? And he said, it's a special talent to be able to listen to a bad khutbah and be able to take away inspiration. It's a special talent. He goes, Allah doesn't give it to everybody. He said, you can go to a gathering where the person is stuttering through because they don't speak the language and they're making mistakes and they're trying. And he goes, and you can hear one hadith of the Prophet ﷺ and that can be your inspiration for the week. But it takes work. And it takes humility. A person can't be entitled with God and expect to receive. It's not how this works. So man of fantasy traveled, traveled to find Allah. You want to find Allah, ask yourself, how hard have I worked? How much effort have I put in? You know, you meet people, subhanAllah, you hear stories of our parents and their parents' generations like coming to this country with $10. Every uncle I meet somehow had $30. Every uncle. I'm like, did you all get like a stipend from the same government? Like what? why is it always $30, right? But, but regardless, whether it was 30 or anything else, the amount of work they put in, the amount of work they put in, you know, I, 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 I have an, there's an uncle friend of ours in California who owns like every pizza hut apparently in the world, mashallah. He's a like, Mayman, so he owns like everything. So, and you know what's crazy? He used to work as a janitor at Pizza Hut. And now he has like franchises and franchises and franchises. Amazing, right? He used to literally work as a janitor. And then he, subhanAllah, he worked hard. Allah gave him tawfiq and he was able to find his way. He was able to make investments that worked for him, and Allah gave him that barakah, right? May Allah grant it for us too. Who knows, right? But the point being is he worked hard. Whenever somebody wants to put in work, look at all the things you're doing, the hours you're spending for your secular education, for your work, for your degree, internships, extra time, whatever it is. Work conferences, professional development, continuing education, everything that your jobs ask you to do and you know, fill out charts and do all these kinds of things. Do we even give a fraction of that to our spiritual growth? Like a fraction. And we wonder sometimes why we're, we feel so stunted there, right? Maybe, maybe if every day we were able to contribute something to my faith, I would feel the same level of growth there that I felt in my career. Maybe. Or my fitness or whatever. May Allah grant us that tawfiq. So Samman of he says that I was sitting there and I was thinking, like, how am I going to get there? After all this work, God, I would have given up. I'm not going to lie, y'all. I'm lazy. I would have given up. He says, how am I going to get there? And subhanAllah, he says that I was staying in Amuriya, and he goes, some merchants passed by. And I said to them, do you guys know where the land of Arabs are? The land of Arabs where they have date palm trees? And they said, yeah, we're on our way there, actually. 
and he was like wow okay he goes i have some some goats and some sheep and some cows he goes i don't have any money can i just give you my animals and you guys take me there they're like yeah for sure they're like absolutely so i gave them my cows and sheep he said and they took me there but when they brought me nearby while i was sleeping while i was not aware they sold me as a slave so they met up with some other guy and they said yeah we have a slave with us do you want to buy him and they were like and the guy was like yeah and he goes, okay. And he, they said they sold me as a slave to a Jewish man. Now, what's interesting about him being Jewish, not that, you anti-Semites. What's that about him being Jewish is there was a Jewish community in which city? Medina. Right? We, he th- All of us, when he said sold him as a slave, everyone's like, no. <laughs> but where is Allah taking him? Any means necessary. Any means necessary. He goes, when I was sitting with my new owner, he's a slave now. He went from being like a chief's son to now being a slave, right? Different than transatlantic slave trade, by the way. A little different. We can talk about that another time. He's a slave. He's a servant of this Jewish man. He starts noticing. He's like sad. He's like, you know, sulking. He's got his head down. He looks up and he just sees date palm trees. And he starts crying. He's like, look at how Allah brought me here in chains. And this is how sometimes Allah works. Sometimes if Allah wants you to be close to him, he will bring you to him by any means necessary. He will bring you to him in health or in sickness, in richness or in poverty. He'll bring you to him. And sometimes all the good that we have, good, quotes, is a distraction from him, so he takes it away. As Ibn Atta'illah says, Sometimes God gives you something, but actually he's taking away from you. Because when God gives you something and you lose focus on him, you're being deprived. Sometimes he takes from you, and as a result, you've gained something. Right? So God took away your something that was distracting you from him, and you've gained closeness to him now. So look at Sanan Fadasi being pulled. He said, I looked up and I saw date palm trees. And he said that I realized that I was where I was supposed to be. He said that I was with him and a cousin of his from Banu Quraida, which was the name of the tribe in Medina, the Jewish tribe of Medina. He says, came to him. And he sold me from that man. He took me to Medina, and by Allah, as soon as I saw it, the city, I recognized it from the description that the priest gave me, not Muriya. He says, I stayed there, and this is before the Prophet got there. So now we're converging timelines. As this all happened, the Prophet is on his way from Mecca. So they're both going there at the same time. The Prophet comes to Kubat, and some man of Pharisee gets sold. Now the Prophet is spending three days there, some man of Pharisee gets bought by the cousin, and now he's in Medina, and he's waiting. He says, I was waiting there, and Allah sent his messenger from Mecca to Medina. He came, and I was at the top of a palm tree, and I was doing work. I was harvesting for my master. I was harvesting dates. And he goes, I was sitting there and the mat- on top of the palm tree, and I was pulling dates, which is very hard work, by the way. And he said that the cousin came to the master who was sitting, and he said, have you heard the news? And the master said, what? And he goes, they're saying, they're gathering in Quba, and they're saying that God's messenger has come. Salman said that when I heard this, I started to shiver. I got goosebumps, and he said, I fell out of the tree. Like he slipped. And he said, wait, they're saying who came to Kuba? And the master looks at me, he's like, what does it matter to you? And Salman's like, oh, yeah, you're right, you're right, right? And he's like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so he goes back up the tree, okay? He goes, nothing, nothing. I just wanted to make sure that I heard him correctly. And he goes back up. So then he said, when the day of work was done and I had the evening, 
he goes, I gathered some dates. And I skipped an important point that I'm going to give you. The last priest that he met in Amoria, he said, there, this prophet that we're telling you about, he has signs. He has signs to prove that he's a prophet. He goes, number one is that he won't accept charity. Number two, he'll accept gifts. And number three, that there's a mark on his back between his shoulder blades that's distinct. It's like a raised little bump on his back. That's called the seal of the prophet. He goes, if he has these three signs, that's the one that we're sending you to. So he goes, that night I gathered what I could. And I gathered some dates. And I went to the prophet, sallallahu in, in Quba. So this is like the last night the prophet, sallallahu in Quba. And he says, I went to him and I entered to his gathering. And I said that I have heard that you are a righteous person. And that you and your companions have come from a journey and you're in need. He goes, I have some charity for you, some dates and charity, and I wanted to present it to you and your travelers as charity. He keeps saying charity. He's like, charity, right? <laughs> Literally in the narration, he goes, I have charity for you because you're in need. Here's some charity. So he goes, I brought it near to the messenger of God, and, I, and he picked it up. The prophet and picked it up with his blessed hands, and he said to his companions, he passed it, and he said, eat. And he goes, and I watched him, and he didn't eat. So then he said, then I went away and collected some more. And when the Prophet came to Medina, I went to him in his new house and I said to him, I saw that you didn't eat the charity that I gave. And the Prophet smiled. And he goes, this is a gift which I'm bringing to honor you. And the Prophet picked up one, gave it to his companions, and they all ate together. Salman said, this is the second sign. Then he said, then I came to the Messenger of Allah while one day he was in Baqiya, which is the graveyard, the famous graveyard Medina. He says he attended a funeral of one of the companions. So this is all happening over a series of days. And he said he was wearing two shawls because the Prophet used to wear like a shawl on his waist and then he used to wear a shawl over his shoulders called the Rida. And he said he was sitting with his companions there in the graveyard and they were sitting after they, had done, they were done burying their companion. And I greeted him and then I went behind him and I started to look. And he goes, he looked over his shoulder and he said he noticed that I was looking behind him and he noticed that my eyes were focused. And he noticed that I was trying to find something that had been described. Like I was looking for something that I had been told about. You know, it's kind of like if somebody walked in this room right now and they're looking at the floor like this. They're not just looking for generally anything. You can tell there's a specific thing. So you might be like, what are you looking for? They're like, nothing, don't worry, nothing, right? They've been told something. So some man's looking and the Prophet looks over his shoulder and smiles and he notices that he's looking for something. So the Prophet ﷺ takes his rida and he drops it. And Salman says, I saw the mark of prophethood between his shoulder blades. He goes, I ran to him, I embraced him, and I started kissing his back. And I was crying. And the Prophet ﷺ said, turn around. So I turned around and he said, tell everybody your story. This is Salman. You see... <clears throat> After looking for this person, his heart was overwhelmed when he finally found what it was he was looking for. This is the fruit at the end of the journey, that you get to go and embrace the Prophet ﷺ like Salman was able to embrace him. I want you now to imagine, just think for a moment of how your first conversation is going to be with him in Jannah. After your life of difficulty, of struggling, of self-doubt, of all of your challenges, when you meet him in paradise, what are you going to talk to him about? Are you going to have that moment like Salman had when you stand in front of him? He's like, I've been waiting my whole life to meet you. That 
powerful moment where he embraces the Prophet Sallallahu The reason why he embraced and kissed and hugged is because what words could be uttered that could have explained this? What could have explained his journey, his sacrifice, his looking, being sold? What could have explained all that? Nothing. Only his heart could pour out to the Prophet Sallallahu So he told him, tell them your story. And he goes, I'm telling you my story now just the way the Prophet Sallallahu commanded me to tell you. Okay? Now, something really powerful happened after this, okay? We're gonna, I know we're going over, but I, I really can't. I was supposed to do some Man of Fantasy four weeks ago, by the way. So this is, I just have to finish. I'm sorry, okay? So then, the Messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he heard the story of Salman. He was, the companions were inspired. He was smiling. And then he said, Salman said, Ya Rasulullah, I'm, I'm a slave. Like, I'm here because I was sold into slavery. And he goes, you know, he missed so many important things. He missed the Battle of Badr. He missed the Battle of Uhud. And so the Prophet ﷺ said, Oh, Salman, he called him one day. He said, Salman, he said, go to your owner, and I want you to draw up a contract where you can buy your freedom. All right, so there's certain things that make it different than the word slavery that we think of. For example, like he's able to go buy, buy his freedom. So he says, go and, go and talk to your owner and see what it's going to take to buy your freedom. Like we're going we're gonna to put it together. We're basically going to have a launch good for you. Okay? So he says... It's really what it was. He goes, so I draw up a contract with my master, and my master, again, because he has all the leverage, he has all the power in the situation, unfortunately, he drew up a contract that was so lopsided. You know what it was? He said that I have to plant 300 date palm trees. 300 date palm trees. Like, that's the work of maybe 50 people, and I have to do it all by myself. And I have to give him 40 units of gold on top of that. So 300 day palm trees and 40 units of gold. He came back to the Prophet Sosam and the Prophet Sosam looked around. He had a gathering and he goes, everybody, let's help him out. Launch good. Right, there you go. It's a crowdfund. He says, so everybody helped out Salman with the date palm trees. Everybody gathered and they dug and they, you know, there's saplings. There's like small trees and they placed them next to the holes. The Prophet Sosam told them, he said, no one plant a single one. Just prepare them. Just get them ready. Then the Prophet Sosam took something that he had just received that day as a gift from somebody out of his pocket and he put it in Salman's hand. He said, go and give this to your master. He looked and it was a piece of gold. It was like an egg. And he said, Ya Rasulullah, how much is this? And he goes, and do I have to pay you back for it? The Prophet smiled. He said, just go and give it to the guy. So Salman took it and he goes, I had no idea even how much it was and I had no idea how, how on earth I was going to pay the Prophet back for this. See, he wasn't thinking in terms of like, oh, he's giving this to me. Look at me. No, he was like, how am I going to pay him back? He said, meanwhile, the Prophet Sallallahu went and he with his blessed hands took every single sapling and placed it into the earth and covered it with dirt. So the whole community came together to help him in his freedom. And then he goes, we went to my master and we presented the gold to him and it came out to exactly 40 units, which is what he asked for. And he goes, from that day forward, I had my freedom. You know what's crazy, subhanAllah? This picture is a picture I took from that garden. That till this day when you go there, the land is marked off. And the garden actually has, not those exact date palm trees, okay? I could say that and everyone's like, wow, wow, Allahu Akbar, right? Freaking out. <laughs> not those exact ones, but still, that garden has been preserved as the garden of Salman al-Farid. When we go with Khalam to Umrah, we take everybody there, we show them. That this is where this happened. So he goes, I finally had my, 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 my freedom. And he goes that I gave it to him. He, I was free and I was present with the Prophet of Allah for the rest of my life after Khandaq. And I did not miss anything else after that with him.
this is the story of some amount of fantasy. And hopefully, inshallah, I know I went way too long, but I hope everybody can appreciate why it is that I wanted to name my son after him. When you think about everything that we've talked about so far, there's one characteristic that I'll leave you with. Sincerity. These people, nothing could hold them back from Allah. Nothing. Like you're talking about starting in a different country and having to cross paths numerous times, having to deal with disappointment of a corrupt preacher and then meet somebody new and go through death and loss and findings. He doesn't even know what he's looking for. And he's looking for something he doesn't even know what he's looking for, but he knows when he'll find it. For many of us, that period of his life is like our journey. Like we feel like we're just going back and forth spiritually. Like where, what am I looking for? What am I looking for? But the only difference between him and us is that we know that the Prophet is at the end of that journey. We know that he's there. That journey's length is only dependent upon how soon we want to get there, not whether or not we'll find him. And when you come to the life of the Prophet and learn about him, you come to that same emotional response that he had, where you just feel like my life now is complete. I have someone in my life that I can learn from, that I can turn to, and that one day we'll be able to connect to. We ask Allah Ta'ala to grant us the tawfiq like Salman had. We ask Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala to make us sincere. We ask Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala to never let ourselves get in the way of our relationship with him. We ask Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala to forgive us of all of our shortcomings. We ask Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala to make us value our faith and to make us not afraid to work hard for it and to make us never put our faith as secondary but always put our relationship with Allah as first and primary. We ask Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala to forgive us for our sins. Um, I have... A couple things I want to share with everybody just quickly. I have a very close friend of mine. We grew up together. Um, and we, uh, from that class of people, we were in the same grade or close. There was like seven imams that came out of that class. It was crazy. It was like the, you know, the draft class of like 97 or something, 98. So um, it's really interesting, subhanAllah. So uh, he's a very close friend of mine. His name's Omar, Sheikh Omar. And um, during high school, his dad... Dr. Nasser, he used to always come and support us and, you know, love us and like feed us and take care of us. And we had a really close knit group because our parents knew that if we didn't, um, you know, during college, I'm sorry, not high school, that if we didn't, that we probably would make some pretty bad mistakes. And so they, they did what they could to make sure that we had a space. And, you know, before Roots, we had a space to, to be safe and to spend time with each other. And uh, this morning, his father passed away suddenly. Um, he was the most energetic, happy, uh, what, he was in good shape. Like There was really no reason for us to understand why his father passed away, but his father passed away while he was visiting his family in Algeria. And so I just wanted to ask everyone to make dua for Dr. Nasser because he was, you know, we are his Sadaq al-Jariya. Like, we are. Like, he took care of us, and now we're serving this religion. And we know that he's going to be meeting Allah soon, and we're on his resume. You know, this, these seven guys who are across the country now serving as imams, like, it's because of him. Um, in part because of him. And I know that Omar is really struggling, and you know he's got a brother, Mahdi, and he's got a sister, Zainab, and a young sister, Layla. Um, and I know they're really struggling. I can't even imagine. They're trying to figure out how to go to Algeria um, to attend their father's janazah. And, and it, I just can't even imagine, but um, just wanted to ask everyone to make dua for them because someone very close to me. I was at a grocery, I was at the grocery store with my mom, and I got the news, and I was just started crying. It was very powerful um, to see you know, this, and very, very sad. But we ask Allah Ta'ala to, to forgive him and to give his family strength. And anyone else who's going through difficulty, uh, you know, one of our members here in the community, that his mom is going through some medical tests and some difficulties. We ask Allah Ta'ala to give her shifa. And um, we just trust that Allah has a plan. No matter what, we just trust that Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala has a plan. Whether or not it's, it's painful, 
to us, we trust Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a plan. So we're just going to keep going. We're going to keep riding that wave, inshallah. Jazakum Allah everybody. Take care. We'll see you soon. Assalamu alaikum.